Welcome again to the Strange Brew Podcast. My name's Jason Barnard and that was Spooky Tooth and it is a Beatles cover from their psychedelic period and it's because I have David Wells here again who wrote the sleeve notes and helped to compile Looking Through a Glass Onion, the Beatles psychedelic songbook to 1966-72. Welcome again, David. Hi, Jason. Yep, thanks for the invite. It's always a pleasure. These uh, shows always go down really well. I think we last spoke... uh, early on this year in 2020 about the uh, proto-psych sounds in 66 and obviously now we're talking about Beatles psychedelic covers. Do you want to talk about the the broad concept of this set and and what's in it more broadly? Yeah, the concept really is obviously there have been a lot of Beatles cover version CDs over the years. Some of them are kind of like the Exotica angle Um, some of them are say Atlantic Records musicians on Atlantic covering Beatles songs this one really the 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 format is it's the late 60s early 70s during the progressive well psychedelic into progressive era when bands were experimenting more and um, you couldn't go far wrong with the Beatles song but they still most of these bands still put their own stamp on it Um, heavily influenced by Vanilla Fudge at times, as we'll see as we go through it. But um, yeah, I'm the I'm the walrus by Spooky Tooth. When I was growing up in the 70s, I just thought that must have been a massive record because I used to listen to mm. stations like Veronica and Mi Amigo, and they were always playing it. So in my mind, that was like a big hit record. It was only years later that I discovered that it didn't even come out as a single in, in either the UK or America. 
Um, but it was big in, in Holland, I believe. Um, and I think it was on Bumpers as well, the uh, the Island uh, 2 album set. But uh, yeah, so I was really familiar with that, but even though it was never a hit. But yeah, it, it's uh, got members of the Grease Band backing and you can see, I think, the Joe Cocker influence on the way that, on the way they've kind of uh, pumped it up almost. The singer Mike Harrison, his voice. Mike Harrison's got that kind of gruff, Cocker-esque uh, feel to it. Although he had that same sound before before Joe Cocker broke anyway, so not saying um, there was any copying involved, just that that was the way that he sang. Uh, we got Cliff Bennett later on as well, who is fairly similar in terms of that kind of gruff um, approach. And obviously I'm the Walrus is an original, very psychedelic, but it, Lennon's voice is not going to be... Uh, uh, confused with with uh, Mike Harrison from Spooky Tooth or Joe Cocker, no. is it? Looking at the set, are these all are these all British acts? They they look predominantly British. They are, yes. I mean, even though, like I say, there's a strong vanilla fudge influence, it it was. I always think of progressive music as as a British thing, and we tried to compile it from the late sixties and early seventies with bands who tried to add something to the Beatles songs in whatever way they could. So even though we've got, like I say, the progressive and psychedelic bands, we've also got Linda Peters, who went on to be Linda Thompson, yeah. backed by Martin Carthy, doing Get Back. So again, she's put her own stamp on that. And so I, I tried to uh, tried to concentrate on, on acts who tried to do something slightly different with the, uh, with the song, as hopefully we'll see as we go along. Absolutely, and you've talked about that vanilla fudge influence and Deep Purple and Help, that does feel very vanilla fudge. Yeah, I think Richie Blackmore said that they were initially heavily inspired by uh, by vanilla fudge, and especially when fudge came to London and we were playing in the clubs uh, and suddenly the penny dropped. And the first two Deep Purple albums before Ian Gillan and I think Roger Glover came along uh, from episode six, have that kind of inflated um, fudge type feel, slowed down, heavied up. Uh, Help was apparently um, a favourite Paul McCartney cover. So yeah, it, it, it's an interesting, interesting version. But as I say, it is it is heavily inspired by Vanilla Fudge. It's got that progressive feel that takes a completely different approach to the original. Yeah, I think we'll see tonight that um, some of the songs that we've got that were covered were not from the psychedelic era themselves. They were early on in the Beatles' career when they were still riding three-minute, two-and-a-half-minute pop songs. Um, as Paul McCartney used to say, let's write a swimming pool. Um, and I think there are some of those songs here which bands have, have thought, well, everybody's doing a Beatles cover. What can we do that hasn't been done before in that way anyway? So, yeah, Deep Purple, Help. It's a version of either love or hate. There's no middle ground, I don't think. Some people would be outraged by it.
Next we get to probably, possibly the most commercially successful version on this set of a Beatles song from this uh, this era. Cliff Bennett and the Rebel Rousers got to get you into my life. Paul McCartney was involved in the production on this one? That's right. Well, Cliff Bennett was managed by Brian Epstein, and I'm sure that helped. Officially, it was Noi Paramore's nephew, David, who worked with Simon Dupree as well, and then did the Head Machine later on. Uh, later on. He, uh, he was the official EMI producer of it, but um, Paul McCartney lived around the corner in St. John's Wood. Obviously, it's his song, um, and... Cliff Bennett was an Epstein act, so he obviously uh, and and obviously Bennett had, had toured. Um, I think the last European tour that the Beatles did in '66, he was one of the support acts. So there was obviously a lineage there. There was a connection, and McCartney turned up one evening and helped them work on it. And then apparently he came back the next morning in his pajamas, hmm. with slippers on and a jacket over his pajamas to finish off the track because he lived just around the corner, literally. But, but I, I do think, I mean, what they used to say about no one sings Dylan like Dylan used to be a, an advertising slogan. And I think you can apply that to the Beatles more or less. But this, to me, is, is one where the cover is probably better than the original. Yeah, on the original, uh, Paul McCartney, when the song is a bit of a sort of soul pastiche and Cliff Bennett is more authentically soulful. I think that's right. He's got, as we said earlier, a gruffer voice. Um, the Beatles, obviously great vocals and all that, but they were particularly English sounding, I think, whereas Bennett did have that kind of gruff, Americanized soul voice. And uh, it's a nice backing track as well. So, yeah, I, I think this is one of the definitive Beatles yeah. covers. I mean, this was the era where there was a wide range of bands because obviously the Beatles were so prolific and certainly much of this time they weren't releasing singles off uh, many of the albums there was many songs that could easily have been singles so then you had acts covering them hoping they'd get a hit i think everybody was waiting for the new beatles album to come out unless they had a, an in with say dick james music mm. and they could get advanced acetates everybody else was waiting for the album to come out and then trying to get in the studio like the overlanders and the truth just trying to clone a, a song that the beatles wouldn't use and of course in those days if it was on a beatles album it wasn't going to be a single so yes so yeah i mean the ultimate in that i suppose is the marmalade um having a massive hit with obla dee obla da which i think the beatles especially john lennon were absolutely sick of anyway <laughs> <laughs> so they didn't want it as a single it was on the album but then if you've got an album coming out in the mid 60s and you've got 14 tracks on it and they're all potential hit singles then everything's up for grabs really <laughs> I was alone, I took a ride, I didn't know what I would find but Another room, maybe I could see another kind of man
with you, I wanna stay there. If I'm true, I'll never leave, and if I do, I know the way there. Ooh, you were meant to be near me. Ooh, and I want you to hear me say we'll be together every day. I got to get you into my And now we uh, go to a, a Welsh band, Blonde on Blonde, and, and their version of Eleanor Rigby. And again, you were talking about a band that adds something to the original. And this is a lot of great versions of Eleanor Rigby. And this is a, a really good one with sitars, horns, and a kind of a marching drum style here. Yeah, I suspect it's not really possible to, to do a bad cover of Eleanor Rigby, although don't, don't tell me there are any. <laughs> uh, I'm, not, I'm not aware no, of No, no, I mean, in Australia, Zoot had a big hit. Um, Vanilla Fudge, it's on their first album, like an eight-minute version or whatever. Uh, I think Velvet Opera did it as well. Um, Goliath, I think. Uh, there's, there's so many bands, but um, Blonde on Blonde version is a nice one. It's from their first album. And again, they obviously thought, what can we add to? And there's no way you could just um, clone Ellen Rigby with the original kind of uh, psycho-influenced strings, mm. stabbing thing. Um, so, so they just reworked it completely. And... Uh, to be honest, it could have been any one of three or four versions, but Blonde on Blonde, um, easily licensable.
have the majority in a hard day's night majority being a band that had quite a lot of singles uh, in the 60s and then kind of i think they, they backed barry ryan on on tracks like eloise before morphing into a very much a sort of melodic psychedelic band in majority one who are, did some fine recordings and, and this is a, a great example that's right they did a lot of singles for decker i think about eight singles they had original exclusive songs from the, the BGs and the Kinks, and they still couldn't get a hit record. Then they backed Barry Ryan, as you said, and um, I think they were largely the live backing band, even though they are credited on the record, because I think it had been session musicians in the studio and, and the majority actors of the live yeah. backing band. After that, they went, went off briefly to back Tony Blackburn, which um, must have been a bit of a shock to the system. Um, <laughs> and then after backing Blackburn, they decided to move to Europe, which is probably probably the last draw of them and they made a lot of good records in um mm. in france and holland as majority one but this was something they did just before i think 69 it was just before they moved abroad uh and maybe they cut right. this and thought well if we can't get this released then we're wasting our time but yeah it's a great version and they were a really good band and it's a majority one compilation. I don't, is it an RPM uh, thing? It might be Revolo. It's either Revolo or RPM. But I mean, unfortunately, right. some of the some of the album tracks are left off. So I still think there's, there's scope there. There's a lot of unreleased stuff still, and they did make um, some really good singles under aliases as well. There's a version of um, Bad Fingers Come and Get It, for instance. Hmm. So there is a lot of stuff out there. So I, I would like to think that at some point we'll be able to revisit the majority because. Um, there's a lot of good stuff that's still hidden away rather than coming out on that uh, that Cherry Red uh, release. But must be about 15 years ago now, to be honest. I 
next we have a band where I've spoken to a few members before. The band that they become were particularly well known. So we got uh, Kippington Lodge here and uh, In My Life. And Kippington Lodge was the band that became Brinsley Swartz. That's right, yes. They did uh, mutate into that. I suppose they're best known these days as a starting point for Nick Lowe. Um, but it was Brinsley who was um, the main guitarist. And obviously, they, they took his name, despite his misgivings, into Brinsley Schwartz. I think Kippington Lodge was the name of his um, parents' house. Um, so, um, yeah, in my life, again, it follows that formula of heavying up not a lightweight song, because obviously In My Life is a, is a great, um, very lyrical John Lennon song, but it is a fairly, um, it has a lightness of feel in the original, and this does heavy it up and uh, have a more driving rhythm to it. Again, Kippington Lodge had several singles out. They couldn't really get anywhere, uh, and it was only when they linked up with Fame Pushers for the the famous or the infamous uh, Brinsley Schwartz uh, hype thing in in 1970, mm. um, they got some press out of that, even though it was mainly negative. <laughs> and obviously, eventually latched onto the um, the pub rock movement, well, the nascent pub rock movement anyway. After after seeing Eggs um, Eggs Over Easy, so yeah, this is kind of a halfway house between the the earlier pop stuff and then the the country rock pub rock stuff. Um, and really, it's a bit of an anomaly in their catalogue. But um, again, really strong version, and it fits the bill. Yeah, it starts off uh, stridently, and I think it's. I think you're right because when you talk about some of the early Kippington Lodge stuff, like Shy Boy and very sort of that early sort of pop psych light sound, which this is starting. Yeah, yeah. That, I mean that was the Mark Wirtz kind of uh, feel, wasn't mm. it? Shy Boy, um, and eventually bands that he worked with did tend to sound like they were Simon in a Mark Wirtz project. I'm not knocking him. He's just mm. recently died, I know. But um, yeah, Teenage Opera's a great, uh, great idea. Some great tracks came out of that. But um, keeping to uh, keeping lodges in my life is not going to be confused with a Mark Wirtz um, outtake or anything like that. Um, it, it was a bit of a, a, a dead end for them, as it turned out. But mm. uh, it's a great record in its own right, anyway. <laughs> Stop and think about them 
I think this is uh, one of the, the highlights of uh, this podcast for me. And it's Duffy Powers' version of fi- Fixing a Hole. And this is kind of a bit more of a sparser, acid folk type sort of thing. This is slightly odd, yeah. I mean, you can listen to it and categorise it any way you want, really. Mm. It's, it's kind of what, what I like about it is that, again, Paul McCartney's vocal is very kind of uh, easily assimilated, should we say. It, it, it's, it's a very light-sounding vocal, even though... It's really about uh, people getting in his way and frustrating him. As Duffy Power makes it sound like he really isn't there in the studio while he's singing it. It's extraordinary mm. that uh, he's almost paired out of existence. And, and obviously, he did have a few problems, um, Duffy. Yes. Um, there's a great um, story by Peter Eden, who uh, had been Donovan's producer and was working for the Spark label in the late 60s, where he was a big fan of Duffy Power and he wanted to get him back in the studio when he turned up to um, to contribute to an album called Firepoint, which is various um, blue, UK blues acts. He didn't have his guitar, and Peter Eden said to him, where's, where's your guitar? You need it for the session. He said, oh, I sold it yesterday. So Peter Eden was a bit frustrated. He said, okay, well, look, I'll give you some money to buy a guitar. Come back, and, you know, when he got it. So Duffy Power returned a week later. Um, still no guitar. And Peter Eden said to him, I thought you were going to get a guitar. I thought, you know, I gave you the money to buy one. And Duffy said, yeah, I did buy one, but I sold it again yesterday. <laughs> so at, at that point, I think Peter, Peter Eden decided to give up. He, he just wasn't in any fit state. And you can hear that from fixing a hole. He, he, it's almost mm. like he's not there. Uh, and it does have that kind of fractured, disembodied feel that, that really makes it stand out. And whatever his condition, he was a great singer. If you listen to stuff he did with Alexis Corner, um, I did a compilation of Alexis stuff uh, a year or two ago. And uh, again, some of the highlights of that set are when Duffy Power's singing. Yeah. And of course, Duffy Power is, is known in, in Beatles folklore in the sense that the, the Beatles um, auditioned to be his uh, backing band. That's right. They they missed out on that, and I think they backed Johnny Gentle instead. Um, hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, also, he's one of the first people to actually cover a Beatles song. He covered I Saw Her Standing There when in 63, and at that point, I think Kenny Lynch was the only one who'd actually covered a Beatles song before him. But that is a little bit earlier than our, you know, like I say, it's from late 60s and early 70s, and this is, I think, it's 69 this comes from. I'm fixing the hole where the rain gets in and stops my mind from wondering where it will go. I'm filling the cracks that ran through the door and kept my mind from wondering where it will go. And it really doesn't matter if I'm wrong or right, where I belong or right, where I belong. See the people standing there, they disagree and never win. I'm wondering why they don't get past my door. I'm painting my room in the colorful when my mind is wandering There I will go 
And it really doesn't matter If I'm wrong or right Where I belong or right Where I belong Silly people run around They worry me And never ask me why They don't get past my door I'm taking the time For a number of things The burning part And I still go I'm fixing a hole Where the rain gets in And stops my mind from wondering Where it will go Next, we have a track with uh, from a former podcast uh, guest, Bobby Harrison, uh, and uh, his band uh, Freedom. His version of "Cry Baby Cry" and uh, Freedom, a group with kind of connections as and, and known as a bit of a Procol Harum offshoot in a way. That's right. Yes, uh, Bobby Harrison was a drummer, and Ray Roy, uh, oh, sorry, Ray Roy, I think, was the uh, was the original guitarist. And they were kind of let go when they uh, became successful and by the Shadow Power hit, and they formed their own band, pointedly titled Freedom. First of all, they did a an Italian art house kind of softcore porn thing called Nero Subbianco. Uh, that Italian only soundtrack came out and then they they kind of revamped and uh, it was Bobby Harrison and two guys from the Washington DCs uh, one of whom had just been in Rust uh, the pre-creepy John Thomas album which we're just doing on Grapefruit in the next month or two um, so yeah that was M- Walt Mulligan uh, but it's Bobby I think who's the singer on this mm. yeah again um, so much material on the White Album that a lot of tracks just got overlooked, and this is one of my favourite uh, White Album tracks, "Cry Baby Cry." You don't hear too much about it, but it's uh, quite um, a sinister kind of song, and uh, Freedom do a good version of it. They do. I particularly like this uh, about a minute or so in. There's, there's some re- really nice instrumental break there that that develops some some of the riffs and, and themes of the original. Yeah, considering they kept changing their lineup every five minute freedom, they um, they always had some good players there, and uh, yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's Walt Mulligan and Brian Hillman who'd been in uh, had been in the Washington D.C.s uh, on that because this is Freedom at Last that comes from that second album of theirs, which again only came out in mm. France at the time, I think. So it wasn't until their third album that actually got a release in the U.K. Queen 
So next we have Jawbone and uh, Across the Universe. Jawbone have a, a bit of a lineage with uh, some some of the um, <laughs> some of the pop psych bands of the era. Yeah, they were essentially um, um, a reconstituted version of the Mirage. Uh, this is where I mentioned earlier Dick James having acetates and uh, uh, Caleb Quay being in the studio uh, and so many big Beatles fans in those groups that um, they thought that um, for a long while Across the Universe wasn't going to come out. I think eventually it came out on No One's Going to Change Our World, didn't it? The um, mm. the vinyl various artists album. But um, So when Jawbone kind of emerged from the ashes of, of the Mirage, um, they covered it, although I think by then it was pretty much out there, I think. I think they were so late in getting it out that they kind of missed the boat. But again, it, it's got a very kind of uh, woozy 68 feel anyway. So, yeah, I do like the Jawbone album is a bit of a mixed bag, but um, there's some good stuff on there. There's a really nice birds kind of pastiche as well. But it's also got two or three songs, which obviously uh, indebted to the band who had just come out and uh, were influencing a whole load of British musicians at the time.
and now we have Andy Ellison post John's children and uh, kind of starting his solo career and legendary sort of manager entrepreneur Simon Napier Bell was um, continuing to to work with him and kind of uh, starting him on the, on the road to a a short lived solo career here with uh, you can't do that. Yes, it didn't really work out for Andy Ellison. He kind of uh, went back to painting, I think, for a few years until. Uh, until about seventy three, seventy four. But uh, yeah, the the um, apparently Simon Napier Bell said to him after John's children, he said, "Well, you want to make a couple of solo records?" And he said he'd like to do a couple of Beatles songs, and they were help, and you can't do that. So they reinvented them really as a kind of um, well, almost uh, a, a throwback um, with an orchestral backing. I think it's uh, Madeline Bell and Dusty Springfield, maybe even Leslie Duncan on backing vocals. Yeah, uh, there is no difference between his version of You Can't Do That and Help, but as we've really had help from Deep Purple, (laughs) (laughs) and You Can't Do That's one of my favourite early Beatles B-sides as well. When I was growing up, my older brother used to play it a lot, and uh, yeah, it kind of worms its way into your subconscious, and uh, yeah, great song, and Andy Ellison, again, he he didn't just clone it, he actually uh, reinvented it really. Yeah, Adam, uh, certainly recommend listeners going back quite a number of years to my podcast with Andy where he talks about this and some of those great stories with Mark Bolan and, and into the, the, the punk era. He told me at the time that Rod Stewart was on um, back in as well as uh, Dusty Springfield and, and Madeline Bell, so <laughs> who knows? It's possible. Um, I, I've, I've read different accounts. Yeah, well, yes, that's what we're talking so, about. Yeah. So, 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 yeah, uh, short of, short of um, taking, uh, having some sort of time warp <laughs> and uh, being in the studio, then no. Do that. 
Crucial states and uh, their version of birthday. Was this uh, a private pressing here? It was, yeah. I mean, one of the um, one of the enjoyable aspects of doing this sort of compilation is you don't just have to go for the big names or the the bands that came out on EMI or CBS or any other big labels. You you can actually include bands who maybe made like 99 copies of their own album in a in a demo studio in a village near Luton, um, which is the case here. Uh, they were a Plymouth band, Trucial States, very influenced by people like Tony Rivers and the Castaways. And I always liked Birthday again, but um, I think the Beatles themselves held it in quite low regard. It was something they made up in the studio, apparently, Lennon and McCartney um, combining. And they just thought it'd be a nice idea that if you have, if you write a standard like Happy Birthday, you make a lot of money from the fact that everybody always sings it um, whenever there's a birthday. So... So they thought maybe we could do that with Birthday. In the end, it didn't really get to, as I said before, there's so much stuff on the White Album that a lot of good tracks have just got buried. And yes, uh, yeah, I do like Birthday. We've got another version by Alex Harvey as well on on the album. Uh, Alex was on in the, uh, the Hair Orchestra at the time, but I do prefer this one. They've kind of done a, like, almost like a, a far fiesta garage beat type thing on it. So it's quite interesting. <laughs>
another song that that adds to the original here, the gods, hey bulldog. I particularly like the sort of brass on this. Yeah, we mentioned David Paramore earlier, uh, the guy who was kind of pushed out of the <laughs> the, um, the Cliff Bennett session. But uh, yeah, David used to look after the gods, I believe. Um, and yeah, again, a, a song that Beatles eventually it turned up on the Yellow Submarine soundtrack, didn't it? Mm. Soundtrack album, but such an embarrassment of riches that they did it and then tossed it away and I always thought this sounds like a hit single to me I mean it wasn't but um, you can see why the gods thought this might be their moment well a lot of bands did if they if they had something that the Beatles had basically thrown away and not worked too long on they, they would maybe tighten up the arrangement which I think is true of Hey Bulldog as you say the, the brass arrangement is really strong and uh, the gods, um, they had Ken Hensley, who was um, known for Uriah Heep in the 70s. Yes, that's right. Ken Hensley was the most famous man. But Greg Lake was with them for a short while oh. before joining King Crimson. But he's not on this. And yeah, I always think of them as basically Ken Hensley's kind of nursery band almost. Uh, as I said earlier, David Paramore then, then did the, uh, the, uh, the Head Machine album with them under an alias. Um, before they kind of mutated into Uriah Heap.
And you've talked about the the progressive edge to many of these these songs, and perhaps the, one of the definitive progressive bands. Yes, and here we have Yes at the start of their career doing really a, a sort of radical revision of every little thing, but still retaining that melodic core to it as well at the same time. Yeah, the the early Yes. I'm not a massive fan of the later stuff, but the early Yes were an interesting band. They had the harmonies, and they were big fans of Fifth Dimension. So they had that harmony approach, but they welded it to a more adventurous kind of musical outlook. Uh, and every little thing is a perfect example of the way that um, bands could, could pick up a fairly run-of-the-mill early Beatles song. I don't think anybody would list every little thing as being one of their be- favourite Beatles songs. And it was a, a fairly slight piece originally, in my opinion. But they'd taken it and really kind of inflated it and probably paid it a lot more attention than the Beatles themselves did. Yeah, it became a bit of a, a favourite for the group over the years, on and off, and played live. Yeah, well, the advantage about covering a Beatles song is that there's so many great songs to choose from. You, you've almost got, for bands in the progressive era who kind of branching out into writing their own material, if you start with a Beatles song, and that gives you the idea of like how you're going to tackle your your musical backdrop, how you're going to sound on record, then you can take a Beatles song, work it up, and then be inspired to do other things on your own in terms of writing. So I think that's what they did. Um, I think they uh, initially they weren't really songwriters, uh, and this helped them along the way. I'm lucky Yes, I know I'm a lucky guy 
remember the first time I was lonely without her Can't stop thinking about her now Every little thing she does She does for me, yeah And you know the thing she does She does for me we've got to the final track today david and um, plastic penny and strawberry feels forever here again it's such a brilliant track and uh is it me or is there a bit of a sort of link to elton john with some of the band members of plastic penny yeah nigel olsen was the drummer um tony murray was also on the empty sky album so that's half of the band who became involved with Elton John. And again, it's a Dick James thing, really. Larry Page and Dick James kind of. Right. Initially, they had Brian Keith, who um, was a session singer, and they recorded Everything I Am, which was 
an American yes. B-side. And once the record looked like becoming a hit, they quickly put a band together. And that band was quite interesting in its own right. Um, Tony Murray went on to be in The Trogs. Paul Raymond went on to be in Chicken Shack. Um, mm. uh, one or two other bands as well. I think he was in UFO eventually. The guitarist Mick Graben went on um, to eventually be in Procol Harum. But he was also in Koch Eyes before then, who were a good band. Uh, and it was only Brian Keith who decided he was a bit older than the others and he preferred to work in that session man field. So he was on the original Jesus Christ Superstar album. And he also did the, the vocals for the congregation, uh, Softly Whispering I Love right. You. So obviously there was a lot of talent there, but they were kind of pulling a little bit in different directions. Strawberry Fields Forever. I had to include a version of that, obviously, especially to end the show. Uh, and there are several, several really good versions. There's a version by Tomorrow as well, but uh, Plastic Penny's version sort of uh, interpolates two or three other Beatles songs as well, like Hello, Goodbye, towards the end. And obviously, again, put a lot of effort into it. I mean, you could say covering Strawberry Fields Forever is sacrilege anyway, but... Um, they uh, they did uh, they did a good job on it and they did approach it with like an open mind. Um, like I say they actually reworked it to give it a little bit of a different feel. Excellent. Well, um, I'd recommend everyone to um, to go over to the Cherry Red website and uh, grab themselves a copy of Looking Through a Glass Onion, the Beatles psychedelic songbook, nineteen sixty six to seventy two. And before we go. Are you still working on, is, is the plan to continue this successful run of uh, compilations uh, for, for uh, Cherry Red? Yes, it is, yeah, they're fun to do. Uh, they are quite time-consuming, obviously, um, but it does mean that we can approach different aspects of that late 60s, early 70s feel. For instance, we've done, like, um, and recently we've done a... Uh, pub rock thing we've done almost like a british country rock thing um called across the great divide which went really well it's got great reviews and has sold well too uh, and we're still doing the year compilations up to 1971 at the moment we've gone back to 1966 as you mentioned earlier so we're just running out of years that's all if somebody mm. could invent some new years that'd be really useful <laughs> but uh yeah they're, they're fun to do and um they always sell well too because they are relatively cheap in terms of like four hours of music and we always have like a 40 to 48 page booklet mm. with it, lots of illustrations, etc. So, yeah, yeah, the idea is to, well, to keep carrying on until I'm told not to, really. <laughs> <laughs> Which is kind of like a, a, a metaphor for life, yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, keep, keep on, on until it. somebody tells you otherwise. Fantastic. Um, well, um, yeah, well, let, let's play Plastic Penny and Strawberry Fields Forever. And, uh, Again, uh, always a pleasure talking to you, David, and, and uh, listening to, to these uh, these brilliant compilations. Thanks, Jason. Yeah, it's lovely to talk to you as always, and um, yeah, let's hope we've got a few more things to come yet. <laughs> I'm going to Strawberry Field Nothing is real There's nothing to get hung about Strawberry Fields forever Living is easy with eyes closed Misunderstood 
for listening to the strange brew podcast if you do like the show please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online it's 10 years since i started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time all your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests to support me just go to the strangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. thank you very much Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help 
to spread the word too. Thank you.